Hey, everyone. Before we begin this week's episode with Deb Radloff, we wanted to A, thank you for your continuing support of the podcast, and two, let you know that at your request, we have added merch. We have an official This Wouldn't O coffee mug and baseball tee available on our website, thiswouldnto.com slash shop. And as an added thank you to all of our listeners, when you go to purchase your shirt or mug, or both... Use the code WEIRDOS at checkout. It'll make sense in the episode. Promise. For 10% off your purchase. That's thiswouldnto.com slash shop. Promo code WEIRDOS. Hello, and welcome to this week's episode of This Wooden O. Today, we feature Rude Groom's sharer and founding artist, Deb Radloff. Deb has appeared in shows including Much Ado About Nothing, The Witch of Edmonton, Twelfth Night, Romeo and Juliet, The Changeling. Credits on credits on credits on credits. And we're so happy to have you here with Yay. us today, Deb. Thank happy you for hopping onto this wooden O. Thank you. I am Monty, uh, as always, Master of Revels for the Rude Grooms. I'm Daniel, Master of Casting and Company Management for Rude Grooms. Have you noticed that we've stopped with the last names? We've just dropped it off. That's right. At this point. Because <laughs> we're your like, friends now. Friends don't point, use last like, names. You know who we are. We don't need to. We don't need to do this. Could you imagine if, like, in season six of Friends, Monica was like, Hi, Chandler Bing, how are you? <laughs> like, It'd be weird. I think th- I think there would have not been a season seven, <laughs> and maybe the world would have been a better place. I don't know. Um, it is, uh, I-, I personally am ashamed that it's taken this long to get Deb on the show. Yeah. But I'm going to blame you, because uh, we've asked, right? Yeah, no, it was my fault. Okay, it great. was my awesome. it was my schedule. Schedule so, in December was not, not the greatest of so grades. So please tell us why you were... So busy that you managed to avoid us for an entire month. <laughs> Not that we're bitter about it or anything. No, <laughs> no. I, uh, well, I mean, holidays are always travel time. Right. So there's that. There's about like a week and a half in there that's just off. But I also filmed my first two tiny baby Blink and You'll Miss Me co-stars in December. What? So Two of them? Yes. You only told me about one of them secretly that I didn't tell anyone else about. I knew about none of them. So because wait a I, I couldn't say anything. You know. Are they on different shows or the same show? No, they're in different they're in different different shows. What? As someone who would really like for that to happen. <laughs> and it's been a while and ain't nothing happening. <laughs> How did this occur, Deb Radloff? Give us your secret sauce. I do owe a lot of my on camera audition training to Devin Shackett. So if you're an actor out there and you are looking for someone, she's a genius. I really can't um, express enough how invaluable it is to gain training on how to audition for camera because it is different than acting school. What are the most like core differences that you've found working with Devin? She deals a lot with what I needed. For a very long time, I held a lot of negative beliefs about myself and about what I could or couldn't do or what I was or was not capable of. And for a very long time, I had myself convinced I shouldn't do that. I'm I'm really meant meant for the stage. A lot of the on-camera wisdom out there is don't move, don't blink. Right. Be still. Keep it all behind the eyes. Keep it all behind the eyes. And while, yes, that's true, the camera will pick up everything. Now, the second thing, and this is the business side of it, is having a good relationship with your representation. Mm -hmm. And what I can tell everybody is that you have to go in and tell them what you want. You have to have 
a conversation with them, let them know what you're doing. And I think we're all so afraid that they're mad at us. I stopped believing they were mad at me all the time. What happened for you to get away or move past that place of fear? I used to have a blog. I'm actually sad that I abandoned it because it helped. But this was a way for me to process my own personal constant battle. It's so important to find a way to conquer those constant negative thoughts because as artists, you're not going to book every job. And even when you do book the job, I was on set and I was like, oh my God, they hate me. They hate me. Hello, the show's not even about me. I'm a freaking tool. I, I have feel like one days line. three through six of every great <laughs> rehearsal process I've ever had have been the days of which I'm convinced the director hates me and, and I'm getting yes. fired at any moment. At any minute. Mm. Like, any minute. It's like, done. I'm definitely the, like, they had a nightmare of what I could be. I don't know. I'm worse than and it. And you're worse than I'm that. I'm so much worse than it. And that's mm. what, just what days three, three through six are. So, then the next week is great. Yep. And then you get into the week after that, right before you go into tech. And it's like, Everyone wants, wants me fired. Producers, definitely getting fired. Other cast members, yep. I'm never working again now. I will say this on the podcast because I think it's important also for, for other artists who are listening to know this. I did book a, a small co-star on the final season of Broad City. However, they rewrote the episode before I, I got the official offer. Oh, no. But, but the casting director who didn't have to do this wrote to my agents this casting director wrote to my agent and said, we just want you to know it was Deb, but they rewrote the script and cut that scene out. Now you mentioned that the way that you have approached your relationships with your representation mm -hmm. has changed a lot of things where you've stopped entertaining this idea that everyone hates you or yes. that nobody actually, <laughs> that nobody actually wants you here. Right. right. So crippling anxiety. Right, all the right, right. And it's what's really interesting to me is the fact that you said when that happened, things started shifting for you. When it was it none of your circumstances changed except the way that you approached well, certain situations. You're always planting seeds. So I've been in practice. I've been working with Devin now for almost three years. I had to allow myself to first be really bad. Like, you're not going to be good the first couple, like the first couple classes that I took with her. For the longest time, I was able to get away with so much. Even still, there's still things that I'm able to get away with because I have so much skill. You have just enough knowledge that you also then get like a little bit of entitlement. It's just enough of this I am owed something for all the work that I've put in. Sometimes I think it's not even that idea of being owed something. It's just like... I, I got this. Mm. Of course you're going to be less interesting. We spend so much time getting away. Like the tools are useful, but we also spend so much time getting away from what it is that we actually do best, which is to trust and honor that who we are is enough. Mm -hmm. And, and this is the thing. It's never going to be enough. There will never be a time where you're like, I've done it. And now I'm satisfied. I often find that it can both seem easy to say that when we've found that footing for ourselves in a given moment. And yep. then two months later, we may find ourselves in the most dejected spot again. Absolutely. Oh, for sure. Oh, yeah. and, and, the, and vice the, versa. Yeah. It can be very hard to hear when you're like, I am spending $700 a month on classes. Sure. I am giving 20 hours a week to auditions. I mm -hmm. haven't had income from acting in eight months. Yep. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm being asked. I'm now being asked to audition. Or to, five to, years. 
or I went five years between a, a really like impressive theater job. And, and I know that I did very good work. Right. I, I know that that is the case, but these things happen. And I guess what I'll say to that is that the, there will, there will never be a time where you're always positive all the time. There no. will, that is, that's impossible. Um, the only thing that has made it better is I have accepted that the low points will happen. Letting Go is a great book about dealing with um, allowing yourself to feel whatever the emotion is. And without judging it, you just feel it and you let it pass. So to me, it was finding the balance of not judging myself for having a really down moment and also knowing that I was I was doing the work. That shift is reminiscent of, I think, the best piece of advice I've ever been given when it comes to audition technique. I was speaking with a uh, an acting mentor at the time, um, and I was telling her, she was like, how do you feel? Because it was the day before I was supposed to do my self-tapes. And uh, I was like, I'm really nervous. And she told me, I think, one of the most important things I've ever heard. She said, do not walk into the room to do your self-tape and treat this like an audition. She was like, you are not going into audition. Let everybody else audition. You're going into rehearsal Mm -hmm. because Mm -hmm. everybody who goes in, she's like, when you go into a room with the mindset of this is an audition, a lot of people will treat that like, please give me permission to do this. But if you walk into an audition or you do a self tape and treat it like it's a rehearsal, you walk in with the assumption that this is yours and you don't have to ask anybody's permission to do the thing that you want. You can just make the choices in the room and do the thing that you want to do in the beginning. And because you're not asking for permission, you're going to come in with a within an air of confidence and a sense of play mm. because you're not again you're again you're not asking for permission that was Michelle Shea and i think that is quite possibly one of the most transformational things i have ever heard when it comes to walking into audition rooms when you just can't smile through it anymore when you can't reframe your context into that positive how do you how do you find the way forward so i think it goes back to deb what you were saying earlier which if i can try to like synthesize it all down is you don't deny where you are Mm -hmm. you don't it's it's you you accept where you are and the way that you described it in your in your life and your own mindset it reminds me of a lot of what we used to hear in acting school, which is like, don't try to invent or deny anything. You accept where you are. So if I'm coming from a place of, I haven't been to an EPA in six months, I can't change the fact that I haven't been to an EPA in six months. Mm -hmm. So I'm not going to walk into the room of an EPA like I've been doing it every day for the last six months. I'm like, I can't change that. I can't control that. What I can control is how I show up in this room. I can control the kind of prep that I do going into this audition. And I can control what I do in this room. So I think it really comes down to, for me, it's recognizing that anything that I don't have direct control over, that I can't influence, is taking focus and energy away from the things that I do have control over and the things that I can influence. Oh, and and that's the other thing too, is that um, for a long time, 
I engaged in covert self-sabotage. It was scarier to me to really be prepared and really stand in my own power because... This is such a Because if I did that, I couldn't hang on to the excuse anymore Mm -hmm. that the reason I didn't get the job is because I wasn't prepared for a long time. Not being prepared was a crutch. And I didn't even realize that until I took the time and letting go helped me with this a lot. That book helped me with the the cages that we put ourselves in is that you have to recognize that these cages, not in anger, but like in thanking them for their service, like recognizing that the cage of unpreparedness was self-protection. In a way, I, it's like it's like the tension we have to get rid of right, as actors, like, right? Like that yeah. shoulder tension is there to protect it's you there from to something, protect you, but, but you just got to get you, rid of it before you can actually release your voice fully on stage. Right. I'm curious now that you've had both experiences and you know the difference in your work uh, between when you prepare versus when you don't. For me, I am much more frustrated with myself when I don't prepare as much as I could have beforehand versus when I do prep and I do all of the pre-work and then don't book. Because if I do all of the work beforehand and I still don't book, I can, for me, it's easier to let that go because it's like, I did everything that I could have done in that moment just means it wasn't for me. Even though I'm more prepared these days than I, than I am usually. I still have my bad days sure. because I'm a human being. We are always doing the best we can. It's just that sometimes our best kind of sucks. Hmm. So, and that's, that's in everything. Like we are always doing the best that we can in that moment. What Devin says in her class a lot is you are as prepared as you're going to be. I wasn't referring to that practice in myself being like, you could have done better and mm-hmm. that's why you're not booking. Cause I've gotten, I've gotten parts mm-hmm. in auditions where I thought I was terrible. Sure. For me, it's not about whether or not you book. It is, did you feel like you represented yourself in the best possible mm. way? Or do you think that there was more you could have done? While I think that the idea of having a positive outlook and giving yourself the benefit of the doubt is in many, if not most cases, certainly very helpful and usually the thing an actor needs to hear. I think theater in particular can kind of lend itself to actors who come in unprepared and come in using old tricks. And there is a safety that can be found in knowing that you'll fail the way you've always failed because you're not trying something Hmm. that could result in either great success or failure that you can't deal with. It's the fear of getting your heart truly broken. Yes. It's it's mm-hmm. saying which is the cost I, of love, right? Which is the cost of love. It's saying I'm going to do less than I know that I'm capable of because if I do that, it's easier to accept that I'm not where I want to be than it is if I really put my heart on the line and it's still a no. We have a structure that kind of fights 
the, the natural impulses of who you are. And we spend so much time trying to cover it up. What's wrong with wanting to be there? What's Mm. wrong? What's wrong with being excited? What's wrong with telling the first AD, this is my first co-star and I'm so excited to be here. Why do I need to be too cool for school? Because I actually had some of the best- How can you be human if you don't have dreams and wants? Yeah. The best human experiences that I had was with, um, the costume people and they were Like I made friends that day because I actually didn't try to be too cool for school. Mm -hmm. And I, I said, you know, I'm, this is, I'm so excited to be here. And does that mean, mean that maybe there were some mistakes that were made? Probably because I'm a human being, but we do, we spend so much time being afraid of getting our hearts broken because we love this so much that we're scared to put it all on the line and be who we are. Because in that moment, even though everything that we're told is like, it's not personal, it's not about you, even though we know that in in here, it always feels like a rejection of, of who we are as a person. And that's the part that that auditioning, that's the part that we're always trying to understand and separate is that we should always be brave about the work. We should always put our hearts on the line for the work. We just have to also understand that what we're not doing is putting our hearts on the line as people. Mm-hmm. As as in, it's not going to break you. That's why I say you have to both let the feelings be there and pass and also make note of your wins and, and keep being prepared because those are all things that will help you in this career right. with getting, getting, just being here. And if that means you have to take a break, then take a break. If that means you need to get a bunch of friends who you really love and, and make art, then that's what you do. Speaking of getting a bunch of friends you love <laughs> and making art, thank you for that beautiful segue, Dad. Yeah, it was um, lovely. Would you uh, uh, share your first memory of what was to become Rude Grooms? That singular meeting that we had when I was doing that WeWork job and you, you and I met on the rooftop on the rooftop. And we were, we were just discussing that we should, you know, we'd always kind of, we'd work together on a lot of other projects, but we wanted to come together in something because we'd experienced a lot of mistreatment in, in these showcase codes. And I'm not saying that to give a bad name to showcase codes. There's a lot of really wonderful work that can be produced under a showcase code, but Monty and I in particular had, um, a pretty negative experience. It wasn't that the showcase code in and of itself was a problem. What that code should really be meant for. You want to be making something that matters. The inevitability is that between getting like proper contracts you want to still play, Mm -hmm. then you should play with people that you like doing work that you, that matters to you saying words that are just glorious and delicious to say. And you should be a part of a process that respects who you are, that values you. And that makes you feel like, yeah, this is why I wanted to do this in the first place. So, so we, kind of worth the, the, the beginning of the first half year of the company. Right. And Daniel, you came in for the first couple of shows. We had talked a lot 
post-college, I think we would run into each other maybe a couple of times a year. Yeah. And it was always like, we have to, like, we have to do mm-hmm. something. We have to do something together at the very least, which is we have to see more of each other, you know? And um, when you came to me about Much Ado, because Shakespeare Hunt was just something fun. Yeah. That was just a fun exercise to do as an actor, but... That was, honestly, that's still my favorite Rue Grimm show, was that Shakespeare That Hunt. was a lot of fun. But when, uh, when you came to me about much ado it was right in the middle of my transition out of a not great work environment mm-hmm. and it felt like things were starting to turn on the upswing for myself like personally and then that gave me an opportunity to do things professionally and i remember going into the prep for that show with a newfound appreciation mm. for the rehearsal and performance process so i remember like Having a conversation with myself like, okay, you are about to transition into a new part of your life. Mm-hmm. You are letting a lot of things go, which means you have the potential to essentially hit the reset button. Mm-hmm. You have a responsibility mm-hmm. to yourself to show all the way up. Just like mm-hmm. come yeah. completely correct. That means first rehearsal, you're off book or as close to off mm-hmm. book as you can be character choices made with still allowing for some room for improvisation Mm -hmm. and like finding things. But I was like, you are going to be prepared because in this window of leaving my old job and starting this new job, I was like, you got nothing but time. Mm -hmm. So you have a responsibility to be prepared. And so that happened and it came and went and it was super fun. And then Monty and I just kept on, we kept in touch after that, it was the beginning of 2019, and I got a phone call from Monty. It's like a long twenty, uh, long two-minute voicemail, but he was just like, I want you to be more involved in the company, and I want us to sit down and have a conversation about what that looks like. Right. And that sort of came together in the months leading up to Romeo and Juliet. And um, again, another great process where I was just able to like throw myself into mm-hmm. the work And I noticed that as I kept doing more things, those wheels just started turning and generating more ideas and more energy. I was like, we Mm -hmm. should do this. We should be looking at this. We should experiment with this thing and that thing and the third thing. And it really all started. We got to where we are now with, you know, the shows that we've been doing and then this would know and all of this other stuff because... You and I kept having a conversation like, we got to do more stuff. Yeah. And it wasn't a thing of just like, yeah, yeah, let's do some more stuff together. And then we don't talk for a year. It was like, let's figure out what we're going to do and really have a conversation about Mm -hmm. it. And it's been great because that has, over the years, it has bled itself into my personal life because now... I, that's genuinely Now how. you live in Queens. It's great. I'm so ex- <laughs> Daniel just moved to Queens, everybody. We're so successful. <laughs> I have, uh. This episode I, will come out a month and a half after we recorded <laughs> it. So I'm just wishful thinking. You're yeah. talking about putting positive thoughts Put out, there. out there. I'm the just universe. putting it out there. And so. See, and like, I'm in my gullible, my gullible self. I was like, really? You moved to Queens? <laughs> that means it's true. If two people believe it, that means it must be true, right? That's how facts function now in 2020. Oh, God. But so, but so this. I am, oh. But I was saying this is how this is it's it's bled its way into my personal life and it's led to more meaningful relationships because mm-hmm. now the people who are closest to me mm-hmm. have followed that same model where someone is just yeah. like, we should do more of this or we should spend more time together. Right. And somebody will be like, yes, 
I agree. Let's do it. When are you available? And the oh, people yeah. who right. are the most proactive about it or respond to that proactivity from you, those are the people who I'm closest with now. And the people who just say it to say it, I'm just like, great. I don't really have time. Yeah. You. Creativity breeds creativity mm-hmm. is, is I guess the, and practice breeds preparedness Yep, and, yeah. and it's all a practice. Like I, that's how I feel about everything that is rude grooms is mm. we are just putting one foot in front of the other. And what I love about it is we always know that we want a little bit more but we take the opportunity to learn from what happened and then move f- forward with what it is that we want to do next. And I, I, that's what I so appreciate about, about being here, about being a part of this circle, about being a part of this wooden O. When actors who have yet to find a collective or an artistic home, maybe it's a company like Rude Grooms or a company like Hedgepig, mm-hmm. where you're still not making, like you're not making money off. This is just a place where you know you're going to get to make art with people you trust that you at least artistically believe in. Mm-hmm. For actors who haven't found that yet, how difficult is it to create that space for yourself? What are the things that an artist who's used to being a for hire artist can gain by getting that experience of being in control of their own artistic expression. You have to become a person who schedules that Google calendar. I kind of did that a little bit with you. I kept, you know what I mean? Like I kept bugging you. I was oh, like, Oh yeah. We bugged each other for we years. We bugged each other. I, I just, I like creating, I don't know why, but every time we were acting together, I was like, yeah, I like working with this human. Like, I can't really describe it other than that I, I bother people that I really am like, yes, this, this is, this is, these are my friends. Bother's the wrong word. Nurturing those kinds of, of connections and relationships and friendships with people, I, I think it is part of where that comes from. People don't forget and the people that you like and who like you, you will always find them. But, but it's about reminding yourself that you aren't alone mm-hmm. and, and building those relationships and those friendships. That's the important part. So if you don't have a community to begin with, you have to get good at meeting people and creating it. And that can really happen in any way. The late Richard Easton, who was a teacher at the Old Globe long before my time, used to tell the students, go to the theater. And the reason you go to the theater is because our special superpowers that usually if you're going to the theater and you have a friend in the show, you always go and you always let them know and go backstage. And that this is where old relationships are rekindled. This is where new relationships are formed. This, this is where you get to meet and talk to and get fed even a little way and I remember that because I have some friends in, in some really great shows and I'm like, I'm going to buy tickets to those shows. I'm going to let them know when I'm coming and I'm going to go backstage and I'm going to remind myself why I really like that person, why I like their work. And that's, that's also another thing that sometimes we hide from mm. rather than allowing ourselves at any given moment to remember mm. that we have, we have a secret pass that the general public doesn't have. Right. And that's a power. And that's beautiful. Know that your people are out there. 
Your people are out there and they want to find you just as much as you want to find them. Yep. Right. But you have to stay open to them finding you and not allowing your fear mm. to convince you that you're not worthy enough to play. It has been so, so overwhelming for me to, to come back to creating work again. And like with people that you love, like mm -hmm. finding that out again. So if you're listening to this and you have a similar experience, please, please, please share that with us. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, if you're new to the podcast, uh, as I mentioned earlier, you can email us, this wouldn't know rude grooms, uh, tweet us at this wouldn't know or at rude grooms. Uh, but also like we're, we really, really, really want to feature some audio stuff from you. So particularly if you have a story like this, record it on your iPhone, record it on your Android, yeah. email it to us. We will listen to everything you send to us and we will feature as many as we can. Cause I think elevating these stories of times that we able to are able to find those moments, mm -hmm. those reconnections can be really helpful when you're in the slog of this business. In terms of how difficult it is to find that artistic home or those people who want to work with you, mm -hmm. I would say it is easier than we allow ourselves to believe it is. Mm. Yeah. In my experience, whether it's been working with rude grooms or in other places where I found welcoming artistic homes, a lot of the time it really is just going to people that you enjoy working with or with whom you share similar artistic vi visions mm. and values and saying to those people, hey... I really enjoyed working with you or mm. I would like the opportunity mm -hmm. to work with you. Can I buy you a coffee? Yeah. And maybe we sit down and figure out how we can do something together. Yep. Do you have, when's the next available time you have for lunch? I'd really love to, I'd really love to sit mm -hmm. down face to face with you and figure out some ways that we can work together. A lot of the time it is just asking. Right. Finding the people that you'd like to that you'd like to work with or that you'd like to involve yourself with and just saying, Hey, I'd like more of you in my life artistically. Mm -hmm. How can we make that happen? Yep. Are you on board with it? And the people who are supposed to be there, the people who you're supposed to create with will be like, Absolutely. Here's when I'm free. Let's make this happen. Absolutely. The second question, if you are, if you're used to working by yourself or working for hire or sort of being lone wolf, uh, for lack of a better phrase, what can, what can you gain from that? I think that there is freedom in a sense of community. Mm -hmm. There mm. is a freedom that comes from working around a core group of people who at the end of the day, down to their bones, believe in your capacity as an artist. Mm -hmm. And even if you're not in a place where you think that you can be, there is something that is invaluable from finding a group of people who believe in your, in your talent or your hard work mm -hmm. or your creativity or your imagination or whatever it is to invest in that. Mm. There is something that is so strengthening from being around people who believe in you enough to invest their time and their effort and quite frankly, to put their name on the same project of yours to mm -hmm. be like, yeah. I will put my name in print and I will stand out here with you. That is how much I believe 
in in you as an artist. Like I will put my name out there with yours yeah. on the same page. I'll to go up. into battle with you. Yeah. yeah. Can I just say it has been such an extraordinary delight. And I think really the only experience I've had in my life so far to get to do that with the two of y'all now mm-hmm. on like a variety of shows. Yes. A lot of different stuff. Mm-hmm. In, in quite a close density. Like I feel like very few theater actors today, unless you're getting to do a couple seasons of the RSC, get yeah. the experience of going on this particular trek yeah. with artists that you love and know. So what I right. would what I would say, I think the the biggest takeaway and how you get to all of these things, how you get to the answers to these questions that we're talking about is you have to know your worth as an artist. You have to know that there is something that you bring that is singular to you. Mm-hmm. And I don't care. I don't care who you are or where you're at in your journey as an artist. You got to know that you there is something about you that is not replicable. Mm-hmm. And whatever that is, you have to know, you have to at least, even if you don't know it, if you can't name it, you have to believe that it's there. Yeah. And you have to be willing enough to stand on that, to come to people and say, I would like to work with you. I would like us to do something together. And I think you only get to that place if you have some idea of your own value. Because if you don't believe in yourself as an artist, even to whatever capacity, if you don't think that you bring anything of value, it can be very hard to ask that question. It can be very hard to put yourself out there like that. So I think it's knowing, I think you have to know to some degree, your own inherent value and trust that there are other people who recognize it. This week on Twitter, Amber Elby, who is at Amber Elby, says, look what came in the mail today, a new shirt with my name on it, eek, made by the wonderful weirdos at at this wooden O podcast. I tried to get the lovely at Rude Grooms logo on the back in the photo too, because it's in the mirror. Did you see this photo on Twitter? I did, yeah. yeah. It's, it's awesome. It's really, really cool. Very well done. You did. Um, thanks, friends. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, we're, we're so grateful to you for giving us this find your weirdos. Which also goes back to the copy you heard me place at the beginning of this episode. We've got merch. Go buy it. There's a discount. And that discount code is only good until March 16th. Yes. So go and go quickly. I have a shout out this week to Mike Ortiz, who says on Facebook, loving your podcast with Montgomery. That episode with Anya was inspiration. We are thousand percent agree it's so great to have you listening in all the way down in miami and you are welcome on podcast mike literally anytime you find yourself in new york i haven't i don't think i've seen mike in years so it'd be great to have him come to new york to sit down and you know uh do a catch-up over some of his tea oh yeah yeah oh yes i love this idea yeah also this week, Alistair Hunter, who is at Alistair underscore H on Instagram, shared a story with a screenshot of our episode Play with Elizabeth Ahrens, which says, at Montgomery Soto edits this wooden O on Amtrak, I listen on Scott Rail. Because we're truly international on this wooden O. Love it. This week for recommendations, I am going to recommend 
uh, yet another podcast. If you are like me, you have been spending too much time paying attention to the current presidential primary process, and there is a lot of chatter about what is actually going to work and speculation about what people are going, what people are thinking. Uh, one of the things that has really helped me find my footing when listening to all of the noise and the chatter is the second season of The Wilderness by Crooked Media. It's a six-part, it's a six-part series, and in it, they go around to different states and different counties that have proven decisive in the most recent series of elections, and it is a real hard, boots-on-the-ground look with activists, organizers, and voters about lessons that have been learned in previous elections, things that are sort of starting to take shape in the current primary process, and I think real common sense uh, solutions for what to do going forward as we head toward November. So, season two of The Wilderness by Crooked Media. My recommendation this week uh, is also a podcast, uh, LeVar Burton's LeVar Burton Reads. I'm doing a dry five weeks, and so I'm actively trying to replace my evening wind downs with something else. And so far, that is herbal tea, a bath, and listening to LeVar Burton read me stories. That sounds decadent. Yeah, I think I've finally reached adulthood and can die happy. It is uh, reading Rainbow for Adults. The curation of these stories is astounding. It's authors that I can't believe I haven't heard of and authors that have, you know, a very small amount of work outside of the story that he's reading. So it's a great way to discover new writing. Uh, And of course, who doesn't want to have LeVar Burton in their ears at least once a day? Correct. So LeVar Burton Reads, it's available wherever you get your podcasts. And I think it's also a Stitcher premium thing if you want to get it early and not pay uh, or not listen to ads or whatever. Cool. If you have anything you'd like to share on this week's episode, please tweet at us or Insta at us at this wouldn't know or at rude grooms. One quick note about that. If you're going to tweet at us, make sure that not only you at us, but use the hashtag RG wouldn't know. I remember in earlier episodes, I said, use the hashtag this would know. Turns out there are a lot of Shakespeare nerds on Twitter. Oh. And so the hashtag this would know is pretty ubiquitous. So use the hashtag RG would know. You can also send us questions or even better, record some audio questions and send them to us. Will we play them, Daniel? Oh, of course. A thousand percent. Hi, Monty and Daniel. This is Amber Elby, and I wanted to send in a recording of my response to Deb saying that know your people are out there. Um, I'm lucky to have already seen this episode when it was recorded on your Patreon page because I support the Rude Grooms. So I do encourage other people to join me so they can hear this in advance and possibly respond as well. Well, when I first started writing my weird fantasy Shakespeare mashup novels, I was more than a little hesitant. They'd been in my head for a while, but I had put off actively writing them because I thought, well, who could possibly want to read them? And as I wrote the first novel, Cauldron's Bubble, I showed it to some trusted friends who were unfortunately less than encouraging. But then many years later, after my first book was published, I joined Twitter, and thanks to technology, I met other people who were the same kind of weird that I am. And that's what makes social media so magical. No matter where you might be, no matter how eclectic or unique or involved in a niche fandom, you can find other people who are interested in the same stuff as you if you only look hard enough. 
And yeah, of course, there's a dark side to all of this social media networking, but there's still so much beauty in having the ability to find those who love the same way and the same things as you. So I encourage everyone to find your weirdos. They are out there, but you might just have to look for them virtually. Well, Deb, uh, that was barely the tip of an iceberg. So I guess we have to have you back again. Oh, boo. (laughs) But until then, where can people find you on those interwebs? You can find me on Instagram at at Deb Finding Her Win. I know, bad bad news, Debs. There's no website yet, but... It'll be under construction soon. But you're getting work without a website, so it doesn't even matter. That's right. Well, you got to have a website. You know who yeah. doesn't have a website? Christopher Walken. <laughs> I He's love doing okay. He's doing okay. Love Christopher. No website, no cell phone. I don't need a cell phone. <laughs> I'm walking, walking on the sun. On sunshine. <laughs> um, <laughs> I am Monty. You can find me on the Twitter at Montgomery Sutto, no N, and then on the Instagram with an N at Montgomery Sutton. Uh, I'm Daniel. You can find me on Instagram and on Twitter at the Daniel Kemper. We'll see you next week. Bye. Bye, guys. Bye. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of This Wooden O, hosted and produced by Daniel Kemper and Montgomery Sutton. Original music is by Kara Arena. This Wooden O is brought to you by Rude Grooms, a Queens, New York-based theater company creating epically intimate theatrical experiences in public spaces, non-traditional venues, and new media. Learn more at rudegrooms.com or follow us on social media at Rude Grooms and at This Wooden O.